Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, and in this bonus episode I have enlisted the help of an expert to look at Ireland's withdrawal agreement from the UK in 1921, also known as the Anglo-Irish Treaty, and see how it compares and contrasts with the UK's withdrawal agreement from the EU. We'll have a look at its context, its contents and its consequences. Bit of a spoiler alert, comparisons are largely misplaced. Context is very different, but the consequences, at least in the form of the border on the island of Ireland, are still very much with us. So with the start of this episode, I'm standing in the hallway of the National Archives talking to Dr John Gibney. John, who are you? What's your job? Well, Colm, I'm one of the assistant editors of a project called Documents in Irish Foreign Policy which publishes the archival material relating to Ireland's foreign relations since 1919. Now, it's a partnership between the Royal Irish Academy, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the National Archives, which is where we're based. Uh, what I'm going to do now is bring him into those archives. So, John, you are the author of A Short History of Ireland as well. So, bearing that in mind, I want to get your opinion on trope that's been put out by Brexiteers, including Nigel Farage, that... Ireland should understand Britain's position in leaving the European Union because it left the British Empire. We're not dealing with like with like, are we? Not quite. I suppose it's worth pointing out obvious points of divergence in that if you were to look at, say, the United Kingdom in 1919, 2021 and the EU in the 21st century, well, the EU didn't deploy state paramilitaries in the United Kingdom, uh, didn't impose martial law on the United Kingdom. It wouldn't have used a kind of fairly an often very brutal military and paramilitary campaign with explicit reprisals against civilians in the United Kingdom. And that's only just the, the military side. That's just the sharp end of the stick. Another obvious divergence you might say is if, if one was to emphasise the, the Brexit referendum as an exercise in sovereignty, well then technically Ireland should have left the United Kingdom after December 1918, after the general election that followed the First World War, when Sinn Féin got, I suppose, an overwhelming electoral mandate for on a separatist ticket. So I don't think you compare like with like at all. And, you know, I think, to be honest, those kind of comparisons are best passed over in silence. OK, well, that's that knocked on the head. Let's look at the treaty, the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed in 1921. Just in brief, what business was this treaty designed to cover? Well, basically, the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which is as we normally call it, it's, it was essentially the political settlement that created an independent Irish state on the island of Ireland. I suppose since about 1912, 13, 14, the British had committed themselves to some kind of settlement of what they called the Irish question. Obviously, this had nearly provoked a civil war and a rebellion by unionists. The Irish revolution that followed the growth of republicanism and separatism as a meaningful, for- as a meaningful force in Ireland would have meant that the demands of Irish na- the Irish nationalist electorate had increased. By 1918, you would have had a definite shift towards separatism and a desire for independence. So to a certain extent, the British were playing catch-up. But what didn't change in all these years, I suppose, was the fact that the British recognised there had to be some kind of settlement in Ireland. The question is, what would it be and on what terms would it be implemented or negotiated. So the treaty itself, the negotiations that led to the treaty came in the aftermath of the War of Independence. There have been tentative contacts with between the British and the independence movement, very often through third parties from December 1920 onwards. But a more meaningful engagement had to wait until the summer of 1921, essentially because the British concluded, largely on the recommendation of their military, that in practical and political terms, it could no longer sustain a campaign in Ireland. You know, international opinion was turning against it. Their own domestic opinion was turning against it. The view of their military was that they could, if given vastly increased powers and the capacity to 
conduct a, conduct a campaign of, of quite frightening repression with a vast number of troops, they could crush it. But in a way, this was a rhetorical argument because they knew full well they didn't have the resources to do what they felt could be done. So their recommendation was either go down a repressive path that would lead nowhere ultimately, and that simply wouldn't be feasible, or negotiate some kind of settlement. So from July 1921 onwards, those kind of those kind of contacts became more formalised, came out into the open. Eamon de Valera would have engaged directly with David Lloyd George in July 1921. Contacts continued over the summer. And by September, both sides had settled on a formula of words that enabled the British to extend an invitation to a conference in London beginning on the 11th of October 1921 that was intended to negotiate a settlement. And that conference is what we call the Treaty of Negotiations. So was there a template for the kind of treaty agreed between Ireland and Britain, was there any kind of a precedent? I mean, Canada is cited in the treaty. So is this a Canada-style agreement? What, How had Canada's arrangement come about in terms of its governance? Do we know that? Or was this really a treaty done from scratch through the negotiations? Not quite. I mean, the British had set out their own proposals uh, for what that settlement might look like in July 1920. And the answer to that lies in the first few articles of the treaty. The treaty is 18 articles and you can break them down into a number of categories but the first and most important category is defining what this independent entity would be, what this independent Irish free state was going to be and it explicitly says that it will be a dominion within the empire and when we talk about the British empire we sometimes forget the word there were various categories of rule within the empire and at the top, at the, at the highest level you might say you had what were called, often informally called, the white dominions. New Zealand Australia, South Africa, which was a particular point of reference to the British, Canada. And these were like the self-governing settler colonies. So Ireland was going to join that club. You might say Ireland was leaving the UK, would explicitly remain within the British Empire, which was what you might call, you might describe it as a red line for the British in 1921. Membership of the Empire was an essential requirement for what they wanted out of this treaty. Now, the reference to Canada was actually inserted as a concession to the Irish negotiators at a late stage because the argument was made that if we're going to be a dominion, just like Canada or South Africa or Australia, well, they're very far away. It's very hard for the British to exert a direct influence over those countries if they wanted to. Ireland was a different story and was pointed out that effectively, geographically, Ireland could still be under a British thumb. So the reference to Canada was put in as a reassurance that basically the free state would have the same status as Canada. So it was meant to be a guarantee that Dominion status couldn't be undercut by the British further down the line. Say Canada-style agreement, yeah, of a sort. But the model that was referred to a lot in the negotiation was actually South Africa. Canada's, I suppose, a geography, the fact that it's probably the hardest... Of one of the hardest of the dominions to for someone to dominate, you might say, that was put in there to reassure the Irish negotiators that there'd be no backsliding, that the status they were getting was going to be the same as the status of the other members of the club they were now. It was now suggested that they should join. Okay, and then we have the oath, which later becomes extremely controversial in terms of triggering the Irish Civil War. That's stitched in there, but that's really a continuity of the logic of Ireland remaining within the British Empire, is it? Oh yeah, well I mean, there was no question of Ireland leaving the British Empire fundamentally. Now, the forms that it might be articulated in, that was a different story. There was some leeway there. And we often call that the oath of allegiance. Technically, it's an oath of fidelity. Whoever swore the oath will quotes, solemnly swear true faith and allegiance to the constitution of the Irish Free State has been established and that I will be faithful to his majesty King George V and his heirs and successors by law. So it's primarily, it's allegiance to the constitution of the Free State, which had yet to be written, but on fidelity to the monarch. Okay, the two are sometimes conflated. Now, one thing that's in that is that, and this gives the treaty kind of a little bit of a relevance as a footnote to global history, the use of the term British Commonwealth of Nations. The original draft of that article or that oath specified the British Empire. And the Irish negotiators objected to it. And British Commonwealth of Nations was put, was put in there as an alternative. That's the first time that term was ever officially used in a legal document. It, it, it was used informally beforehand. But the term Commonwealth, as we know it today, 
as an interna- its international meaning began with the Treaty of 1921. All right, well, let's take, take us further into it because it gets more nitty-gritty after this. There are a lot of housekeeping issues that have to be sorted out in the course of the treaty. Yeah, the treaty kind of... There's a few things in it. Some are specific, some are general. I mean, the treaty doesn't specify what form of government the Irish Free State was going to have. It implies it would be a parliamentary democracy. That's fair enough. But there's more specific issues that pop up. Like, for example, liability for service of the public debt. So that, there was a bill that had to be paid. Compensation arrangements to some degree, like civil servants who might be who might lose their jobs on the changeover in administration, they would be compensated. Though one, there were there were two categories of civil servant, you might say, or public servant, who were removed from that compensation arrangement, namely auxiliaries and black and tans. A big thing for the British, a big concern of theirs was defensive arrangements, and especially naval defence, after the submarine warfare of World War One. Because, I mean, there was a long-standing British fear that Ireland could be used as um, a base by Britain's enemies, as a backdoor by which to get them. And they didn't want the Irish Free State to follow suit. So... I mean, that's one re- one case for keeping Ireland within the empire. And it should be said that the Irish negotiators, they recognised that detail and offered to... I mean, they wanted Ireland to stand outside the empire, but be aligned to it voluntarily and offered to give the British guarantees of neutrality so that they wouldn't kind of take sides in the conflict against the British. So there'd be restrictions on... I mean, the Royal Navy would be responsible for coastal defence. be restrictions on the size of the military. And Article 7 specifies that... Basically, the British could have the use of any facilities in time of war, international tension, but would keep a number of specified uh, harbour facilities, which are detailed in an annex. And that's worth having a look at for a moment, because three of those harbour facilities are what we call the treaty ports. Queenstown, as it was called, Lock Swilly, Bearhaven. The fourth one is Belfast Lock. And that's a kind of striking inclusion if you think where Belfast actually is. And that brings us to another thing about the treaty, which is that you can make a very strong case that the treaty is kind of framed within the theoretical prospect of a united Ireland. Just going back, Queenstown, obviously, that, that's cove there today. But the inclusion of Belfast Lock, as you say, it does open the possibility for a united Ireland. And there are several references that would indicate the British government expected, if not friendship, then at least close cooperation between the new Northern Irish state and the Irish free state that was being set up. Yeah, I mean, even throughout the negotiations, the line that was, the, the, the British line was that they wouldn't coerce Ulster unionism or undermine it. But they seem to be kind of agnostic on the prospect of, you know, of united Ireland. Ireland. I mean, at one stage, Lloyd George said, we don't want to set up two states in opposition to one another. And that if United Ireland was brought about by consent rather than coercion, they wouldn't stand in the way of it. And bear in mind, I suppose that hinges on on that United Ireland still being within the British Empire. So it still satisfies a lot of British concerns and considerations. But they didn't seem to have a problem with Irish unity per se in that circumstance. Now, the political realities were different because, I mean, the British negotiators were led by David Lloyd George, a Liberal Prime Minister. But most of his parliamentary majority was made up of the Conservative Party, who were instinctively hostile to Republicans, Irish Republicans and separatists, and naturally sympathetic to Ulster Unionists. So he he, owned, he could only move so far. And, you know, I should say some of the other negotiators had cut their had been very vocal opponents of Home Rule before 1914, people like Lord Birkenhead or Austin Chamberlain. But both Lloyd George and Churchill were of the view that whatever about coercing Ulster Unionism, whether it's right, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, it simply wouldn't work. And about 40% of the text of the treaty deals with the existence of Northern Ireland and the partition. But it does concede the principle of Irish unity, which is something that people do forget. If you go to the, the sequence of articles that deal with Northern Ireland and with partition, it mentions that obviously the six counties of Northern Ireland were given an opt-out clause. But Article 12 says if they, opt- if they did opt-out, then I quote, The powers of the Parliament and Government and the Irish Free State shall no longer extend to Northern Ireland. So no longer. That suggests that they in theory, would have extended there once. So I suppose at this time in 1921, maybe Irish unity wasn't as much of an issue for the British as it later became. The big thing was they had to reconcile the reality of the existence of Northern Ireland 
with, I suppose, the demands of the Irish negotiators. And that then brings us to, I suppose, one of the other things retained in the treaty, which is the Boundary Commission that was proposed. That basically, if Northern Ireland opted out, a commission would be set to adjudicate upon the border. In other words, that the, the border... The border of 1921 is the border of 2021. But in this treaty, that, that wasn't necessarily set in stone. There was room for possible adjustments in, in accordance with the wishes of people living on both sides of that border. Which was probably more politically useful to the new government being set up in trying to bed down the legitimacy of the treaty, that it was the freedom to achieve freedom and a work as yet unfinished. But in practical terms, it didn't really work that way. Well, the Irish negotiators, Griffith, Collins, Barton, Duggan, Gavin Duffy, they had agreed to seek a compromise even before they went over to London. I mean, it's sometimes suggests that Eamon de Valera went over in July, realised the Republic wasn't on the table and sent everyone else. Everyone else knew a Republic wasn't on the table either. And even in the account of proposals that the Irish negotiators gave to the British, which is a three-page document, there's one word missing, which is Republic. And they'd come to the conclusion that they could accept a relationship with the British Empire once there was some kind of major concession on what Arthur Griffith called essential unity. Once there was, I suppose you might call it, a pathway to unity. I mean, they didn't expect to get, you know, 32 County Ireland there and then. But the hope was that perhaps there was a clear road to get there sooner or later. I mean, it's often noted that the issue of partition probably wasn't the main bone of contention in the outbreak of the civil war that came later, that it plays a relatively uh, small role in the acrimonious treaty debates that followed. But partition was one of the major sources of, one of the major issues for the Irish delegation, and that was obvious from the first day of the negotiations. But it has been suggested that the Boundary Commission seemed plausible, that maybe for for those opposing the treaty, maybe the constitutional status of Ireland not being a republic was naturally going to be contentious but they could look at the Boundary Commission and say you know what not perfect but there's some, there might be something in it for us and it might sort something out Just some of the practical money issues that you touched on John one of them was compensation for civil servants the other one was compensation of the victims for the victims of the violence and one then that rears its head over a decade later is the continued payment of land annuities this was the repayment I suppose of loans that had been extended to Irish tenant farmers to buy out the estates of, of landlords. Now you wrote a piece on this for RT's website and we'll stick a link to this in the homepage of this particular episode but this is the lesson that 11 years on from the signing of this treaty breaking international treaties has consequences. Yeah it has consequences and certainly in the 1930s when that became a live issue and a trade war erupted the British certainly retaliated. One thing about the treaty though is that lurking behind the text of the Anglo-Irish Treaty is a whole raft of detailed procedural documents that specify how all this was actually meant to come into effect. The public debt issue was dealt with in Article 5, where it says, the Irish state shall assume liability for the service of the public debt of the United Kingdom, having regard to any just claims on the part of Ireland by way of set-off or counterclaim. I mean, it's quite vague, but it is accepting the principle that, right, you're going to owe us money. It may be a case that at some stage we have to sit down and figure out precisely what money is owed by who for what, but you owe us money. There's a principle there. And the context of this is Britain has just been through the First World War. They can't really afford to give Ireland a free pass on a share of the public debt that at this stage in Britain is quite considerable. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's, that's essentially it. They couldn't, they couldn't let it go. Now, ultimately, they would let it go in, 20, in 1925. But the quid pro quo was that, you know, in exchange for writing off the liabilities of the British public debt, the Irish Free State had to assume liability for all criminal damage in the war of independence. You know, so there was a trade-off as well. And, you know, finance does come into it. Like like Article 9, the ports of Great Britain and the Irish Free State shall be freely open to the ships of the other country on payment of the customary port and other dues. So essentially trade wouldn't be restricted between the two islands. It was suggested that was partly to stop the prospect of a future blockade of British ports. But even something as simple as that, like it's three lines, but it touches on a fundamental issue. 
in the relationship between Britain and Ireland, you know. And the thing about the treaty, it's setting out kind of certain principles. Relate, I mean, there are some specific details in it, but there's, there's quite a few broad brush strokes that encompass issues that would be far more complex in their implementation than this fairly simple, straightforward document might might lead you to think that's the other side of it you know if you look at the treaty you could say the treaty sets out a set you know sets of principles but how they were worked out in practice is going to be another story there's vast amounts of documentation like extra negotiations that followed in 1922 to basically pin down right with precisely how are we going to get from what's specified here to the reality of something on the ground coming into into real practice to give one example of that the last two articles deal with the transitional arrangements. The 17th article deals with the appointment of a provisional government. But it turned out when, you know, when the British sat down to look into this, they realised they had no legal basis on which to appoint that government. Their, their laws, as they stood, didn't permit it. And they had to cobble together an ad hoc solution that lasted until April 1922 when they could pass legislation that brought it into legal effect. Now, it's a technical detail, yeah, but it does point to the fact that there were there was a huge, there were lots of I's and I's that needed to be dotted and T's that needed to be crossed in turning this into a reality in practice. I mean, it's deceptively simple in that regard, and there was a whole world of messy realities that lay behind it. Finally then, I suppose it's just worth touching on the idea of this treaty is, to some degree, unpicked in less than two decades. Where is the basis in the treaty for the process that begins in the 1920s of, I suppose, increasing Ireland's outward shows of sovereignty? What legal basis did they have for those moves in the treaty itself? Or, or is that outside the treaty? It's inside and outside. The clue comes in the first articles. The first line of the treaty, Ireland shall have the same constitutional status in the community of nations known as the British Empire, as the Dominion of Canada, etc, etc, etc. The fact that Ireland was within the empire meant that as the Commonwealth and Empire evolved over time, as more latitude was extended to the Dominions in, say, 1926 or 1931, then Ireland could benefit from that. Certainly in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, Irish history but actually more, saying that definitely in the 20s and 30s, Ireland's international relations were very much tied up within the British Empire. And as the empire evolved, loopholes emerged, Ireland's kind of sovereignty and international status could be expanded. Now, technically, we stay within the Commonwealth until 1949. The Irish government didn't view it that way themselves. After 1937, Bunrat and was passed. We were technically, effectively a republic, though that wasn't declared till later. And it's interesting, I mean, Eamon de Valera in later life suggested that, you know, he may have been, whether he was messing or not is another story, but did suggest that he would have favoured remaining in the Commonwealth, just to see, wait and see how it developed. I mean, Ireland left the Commonwealth in 1949. Same year, India remained in the Commonwealth as a republic. So the British Empire devolved throughout the 20th century. Now, you know, we can say that in hindsight, because in the nineteen in, in the early nineteen twenties, the British Empire had won the war. It wasn't like the Ottomans or the Russians; it hadn't fallen by the wayside. They were still standing and they were still strong, even if there were tensions within it. But as the empire evolved, I suppose the scope for Ireland, for Ireland to kind of, I suppose, carve out a niche for itself evolved as well. And definitely in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen thirties, you know, Fianna Fáil and Raymond de Valera took it, or did so. But the other, another way of looking at that is we go back to one of the famous lines ascribed to Michael Collins that uh, the treaty offered not an ultimate freedom which all nations aspire to, but the freedom to achieve it. And ironically, it was his political, I suppose you might call his political opponent and the descendants who brought that concept into a reality later on. But it couldn't have happened that the British Empire had not been evolving the way in which it did. And that gives the treaty a significance, I suppose, a significance to global history you know, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And many countries within the British Empire, we some, we often think that, you know, they just look to the IRA as kind of model for an independence movement. They look to, con- countries across the empire look to constitutional developments in Ireland and its relationship to the empire as a source of inspiration, as a possible model, model to follow, at least while we're still in the Commonwealth. Okay, that seems a good point to conclude. 
Was it? Any fi- were there any just any final thoughts? Like Jerry Springer. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Grand. I'm in a very, very zen spot here now. All uh, just a few ducks, heron. Very good. Uh, a strange white wading board with yellow feet. Actually, your, your timing's impeccable because it's probably about as quiet as you'll get in central Dublin. Excellent. Well, that's good. That's good. Come here. I got your email. Just yeah. Um, so we we do have some final thoughts. One of the grounds for comparison was we started out this particular episode by knocking down comparisons between the withdrawal agreement and the Anglo-Irish Treaty. One area of potential comparison that you just wanted to skim over before we depart was the idea of a treaty signed under duress. Now, this has been said before, not least by David Frost, that there was an element of duress with the withdrawal agreement being signed up to. If you wanted to look at a treaty that was really signed under duress, I suppose. I don't think there could be any comparison with the kind of the pressure brought to bear by the British to coerce the Irish plenipotentiaries to sign the treaty in 1921. One of the most, you know, famous lines associated with the treaty, the treaty full stop, is uh, are the words described to Lloyd George, the threat of immediate and terrible war, which, you know, he doesn't, doesn't seem to be what he actually said, but the message was ultimately the same. It was made explicit throughout the treaty negotiation, in fact, even before the negotiations, that, you know, the alternative to the settlement was, would be a renewal of, of war, that the British campaign in Ireland would start again, because the British garrison was still in Ireland, a garrison that, by the end of the War of Independence, numbered well over 50,000 strong. Right, and as you pointed and, out earlier in this episode, if it was to revert to war and they were expected to put down the insurgency, their plan for doing so was a scaled up version of what had already gone on which is something that they didn't want to really do themselves oh no i mean the british decision to negotiate was in part dictated by the views of the own military who put who put a plan on the table saying look if you really want to crush this rebellion in ireland as they saw it this is what you're going to have to do you'd have to impose martial law across the entire country mass executions i mean they put a kind of frightening prospect in front of the british government and basically yeah, yeah we could do this but is the will there to do it is this something that is really feasible to do and now that's a hypothetical scenario but what's more telling is the fact that even after the treaty was signed i mean the british garrison left ireland relatively quickly but there were troops kept in dublin until december 1922 as a precaution to make sure the free state did come into existence that there wasn't a coup d'etat that a republic wasn't declared you know in the lead up to the civil to the outbreak of civil war in 1920 in june 1922 the british had resolved to use force to attack anti-treaty republicans they decided not to do it but you know it's the thought that counts i mean the treaty was signed under duress one could argue was lloyd george bluffing but when you look at the stakes for the british at that time if you look at the conduct afterwards and the willingness in extreme circumstances to use not just coercion but military force to enforce the treaty and to guarantee that it was that it was adhered to irrespective of internal consequences in Ireland you know to make the comparison it's it's a nonsense you know it shows a, a spectacular level of ignorance there's no comparison whatsoever right um yeah, well, I, 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 mean. I suppose in fairness it's a comparison that hasn't been explicitly made but I suppose what, what could be regarded as duress in one quarter when compared with what might have happened in another quarter it pales into insignificance there's one area actually just in terms of, of what you were saying about enforcing the terms of the treaty I think I probably skimmed over it too quickly earlier in this episode as well and that was the issue yeah, that yeah. was contained of, of land annuities and the repayment of those the loans that were extended to, to Irish farmers to buy out their farms that had once been 
on large estates. It became the subject of a political campaign later in the 1920s once Eamon de Valera decided to contest elections. What was the point of campaigning? What did he do and what were the consequences? Just before I answer that, Colin, just to follow up on the the last point, I, I appreciate that comparison hasn't explicitly been made between the treaty and Brexit negotiations, but if someone was to make it, they'd be talking utter nonsense, talking out of their hat at the very least, you know. Sure. So just to make that, if anyone goes down that road, good yeah, luck to them. Don't. You know? yeah. Anyone listening don't, to this podcast, you know? don't, don't make that comparison. Fair enough. Okay. Please don't. You know? yeah, yeah. Life, life's too short, lads. Now, <laughs> when, it, when, it comes to, when it comes to the second issue, I mean, the treaty, I mean, the treaty didn't, the provisions of the, of the treaty didn't last very long. I mean, okay, we're in the centenary year, and I suppose the significance of the treaty is that the independent Irish state that exists today wouldn't exist were it not for the treaty. But that independent Irish state isn't the state envisioned by the treaty. We left the Commonwealth in 1949. But even before that, many of the provisions of the treaty have been undone in the 1930s by um, the governments of Eamon de Valera, you know, who were, I suppose, the defeated anti-treaty side from 1922 and 23 who had entered politics and entered it in a platform of unpicking many of the symbolic and actual issues in the treaty. And one of them related to finance, and it was a fairly big one. And, you know, the issue of land annuities. And just to just to clarify to listeners what the, what those were, at the end of the 19th century, the British began to implement land reform in Ireland, basically because of campaigns of popular resistance against landlords, what we call the land war in the 1870s and 1880s. And essentially, the British decided to implement schemes to allow tenant farmers to basically buy out, buy out the estates off their landlords. They could borrow a loan off the exchequer. The landlord would be induced to sell, to sell their holdings. Be, you know, the sale price would be topped up by the British exchequer. And the tenant could get a long-term loan off the British exchequer that could be repaid over literally decades. Now, that broke the power of the, 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 power of the landed class in Ireland. But it also meant that there was money that was owed. And during the revolutionary period, 1917, 18, 19, and so forth, land annuities kind of fell off the table in, in, in the sense that a lot of the repayments began to be stopped in the anticipation of Irish independence. Now, in the 1920s, after the treaty was signed and the Free State was created, the Free State does have clauses relating to financial obligations. And one of them turned out to be the land annuities, that these still had to be repaid. And on top of having to be repaid, a lot of them were now in arrears. A couple we, of enthusiastic we, joggers there having a chat. We let that man. Yeah, we let them. We let them pass. The ducks at least have gone quiet. Go on. The, du- the ducks. The ducks are enjoying themselves. But your average tenant farmer in the 1920s who suddenly realised that he owe, he still owed a lot of money to the British Exchequer wouldn't have been as happy. So <laughs> when, so in the 1920s when Fianna Fáil were kind of becoming a, po- a, politi- a meaningful political force in Ireland, land annuities was a very potent issue because you know we we know how emotive land issues have been in Irish history, but. It's particularly emotive if you're if you're raising the spectre of your small humble your small farmer doing his best, you know, trying to work his land, feed his family, but might yet be evicted because of money he's money he owes to the British that are being imposed by an Irish government. It's a very emotive thing. And it did garner support. It was a live issue. And in the nineteen thirties, when Fianna Fáil explicitly began to roll back the terms of the treaty, to push out its boundaries. And they could do that because I suppose the British Empire and Commonwealth were evolving as well, so there was perhaps there was more latitude for them to do that. From 1932 onwards, they made a point of refusing to pay those, pay the monies that were owed to the British, arising from the land purchase schemes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, partly this was, they felt that, well, you know, we shouldn't be paying the money in the first place. There was also a sense that, well, if you're going to be paying money to anyone, it's better off, you know, better off spend the money in Ireland. And the, the British retaliated then 
by imposing tariffs on Irish goods. And for the next six years, it would have had what's called the economic war, trade war between both Ireland and Britain. That wasn't resolved until 1938 with a kind of package deal that unpicked a lot of the kind of concrete issues in the treaty. Not just the financial issues, but also some of the military issues. The repayments for annuities were, I suppose, abandoned in favour of a lump sum, which was still quite a quite a substantial discount on the sums that could potentially have been paid. And also, crucially, in 1938, the three main, the three naval bases retained around the, the, the Irish coast under the terms of the treaty were handed back into Irish hands. Now, you could say then that it, it's an irony that a lot of people comment on that, you know, someone like, you know, Michael Collins and many advocates of the treaty in 1922 argued that it was a, a stepping stone, a pathway to greater independence. And it was their political opponents who took those steps in the 1930s. By 1938, not only had these concrete issues been resolved, but the year previously, a new Irish constitution had effectively relegated the treaty to the dustbin of history. So the Irish state had evolved in the 30s. Land annuities were an emotive issue. And it's worth seizing on and remembering because it's a concrete issue. You know, very often we can talk about these things in purely abstract terms, you know, at levels of high politics and diplomacy and international tension and whatnot. But these are issues that ultimately have a very, very concrete, real effect on people's everyday lives, on the lives that we all we all lead, we all try to do our best in life, and things trickle down. And I suppose if you're looking at these kind of agreements, maybe there's a, whether in the past or the present or perhaps even the future, it's always worth bearing in mind that um, these things matter because they have very real consequences. And in the 1930s, in Ireland, that was a very, very live issue indeed. All right. Okay. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks a million, John. We'll let you back to... Thanks, Colin. Let you back to the ducks. I'll get back to the ducks. They're okay. still happy. And All so right. Hopefully so are we. All right. Good luck. Okay, see you. Colin. All right. And that's our lot. If you want to see more treaty-related material, if you didn't get enough of it in that episode, an exhibition opens in Dublin Castle on December 6th and runs until March 2022. It's presented by the National Archives in partnership with the Royal Irish Academy, the National Library of Ireland and the Office of Public Works with records from the collections of military archives in Dublin and University College Dublin archives. And Dr John Kibney, who we just heard from, was involved in curating the content. Thanks for listening.